my dad's Catholic, my mom's Baptist, and so they raised me Methodist because that's somehow in the middle, right? Good, good compromise there. But I, rem- I, one thing I remember being uh, Methodist as a kid is that my parents signed me up for an acolyte class. Now, how many of you know what an acolyte? Not a lot is. It's uh, basically it's the person that brings the torch into the service, very liturgical, and they light the candles. So when you're 10 years old and you light fire, you're like, I want to be an acolyte. And so I, 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 I go to this class and they put this robe on me. I still don't to this day don't know why we wore robes. Maybe someone can explain that to me. And I had a robe and they gave me a, like a little brass handled torch thing. And that's when it happened. The man in charge of the acolyte class was very nice. He was a very godly man, very nice. But for, for a 10 year old, he was rather scary because he had three fingers. And the room was kind of dark, and this man basically took this class very seriously. And he, you know, he put his hands on my shoulder, and I was like kind of looking at his hand. And the room's kind of dark, and he starts telling me about this ghost, this holy ghost. And he starts telling me, Son, don't let the fire go out. And I was like, Okay. Don't let the fire go out. If I could say one thing this morning, don't let the fire go out. Turn in your Bibles. We're in the Acts of the Apostles series. Turn to the 21st chapter. We're going to read one verse this morning. Acts chapter 21. For those of us joining online, get out your Bibles while you still have them. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And there was a great silence. He spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Paul's in trouble. He's in trouble. A great multitude had flocked to Jerusalem and nothing but chaos had erupted when Paul began to publicly preach Jesus as the son of God in the city of the great king. There's nothing but a chaos surrounding him. The Romans are upset. The Jews are upset. The barbarians, everyone is upset with this small man, Saul of Tarsus. And his constant, incessant, never ceasing preaching of Jesus as the risen Son of God. The city is in uproar. The city is in chaos. Paul is in trouble. It was a dark day. And what did he preach? Well, obviously, he preached consistently the same thing that he had preached from the beginning. Christ Jesus the Lord. This morning we're going to be looking at the apostolic message, the apostolic method, the apostolic heritage, the apostolic cost, and the apostolic call. You see, Paul considered himself, as he told Timothy, an apostle, a preacher, and a teacher of the Gentiles. 
He says this twice in his epistles. This was his description of his role in the body of Christ. He called himself an apostle. Now, if you know an, an apostle is someone who is sent. Well, sent to do what? Very simply, apostles were sent to preach the gospel. That is their primary and sole occupation. They're gospel preachers. When you think apostle, think preacher of the gospel. Now, what does this mean, preacher of the gospel? Because it can be quite confusing, this word preacher. Because you might think right now, I'm preaching. Well, guess what? I'm not. I'm not actually preaching right now. I'm teaching. This is teaching. Preaching and teaching are two separate and distinct concepts in the Bible. Teaching is instructing the saints, edifying the believers, educating you with the things concerning the word of God, expositing, educating, instructing, building up the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the perfect measure of the Son of God. That's educate, Christian education, discipling. Discipleship, that's teaching. Preaching is something totally different. The verbs are different, preaching and teaching, but the audiences are different. Teaching is done to instruct the saints. Preaching is done to reach the lost. Preaching, as defined by the scholars, is publicly heralding the resurrection of Jesus. It's publicly declaring who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's the definition of preaching. Preaching's audience is to the lost. So we teach believers and we preach to the lost. This was Jesus's ministry. He was preaching and teaching and healing. Those are the verbs associated with Jesus over and over again. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, teaching in the synagogues and healing all various forms of diseases. Two chapters later, he does this in all the cities, not just in Galilee. When he sends out his disciples, he tells them to preach the gospel. Freely you have received, freely give. Heal the sick. Preaching, teaching, and healing. That's the ministry of Jesus. But this morning, we're focusing on preaching. And it's very important because we must look at what the apostles preached. Because what the apostles preached in the early church is radically different than what you hear often in American Christianity. I'll say that again. What the apostles preached and what you hear in American Christianity are two radically different messages. Now I'm indebted to the scholarly work of C.H. Dodd who did a compilation of every single thing that was preached publicly in the New Testament. All the recorded sermons that we have, the majority of them coming from Acts of the Apostles, he found eight themes, eight multiple references, eight subjects, eight themes in the apostolic preaching, what scholars call the kergama, or what was preached coming from the verb carousel or caruso to preach or herald the gospel. So these are the eight. 
Very important that you pay attention because guess what? This is the gospel. You have to understand this is what was preached by the early church. You know how many times I hear, I wish we could just get back to New Testament Christianity. Well, maybe if we start believing the things that the New Testament apostles preached, we could get back to New Testament Christianity. The first one is this. The time is at hand. The prophecies are fulfilled. Christ was born of the seed of David, that he died according to the scriptures to deliver us, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead on the third day. No amen? Amen. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. He is exalted and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge both the quick and the dead. And then the great response, repent and believe the gospel for the remission and forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel, folks. This is the most important part of the message. This is the most important part of your understanding. If you're going to be born again, transformed from the inside to the outside, this has to get on the inside of you. This is the life-giving word of God. This is the gospel. This is what the apostles preached. This must also be our message. This is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and wants to give you everything you ever wanted. Come to Jesus so you can be blessed and happy and favored. This is the gospel which calls you to repent of your sins. Trust in him that he's the judge of the living and the dead, that he's coming quickly, that he died for your sins, but he was buried and rose again for resurrection and life. You have to understand that in the last days and times of darkness, it will be the gospel that will be changed. It will be the gospel that is attacked. But if you hold fast the faith that was once delivered, if you hold it tightly, if you hide these words and truths in your heart and it becomes an ever-present reality, then you'll be able to withstand, like the apostles of old, great suffering and trials. Because the gospel more than a what, it's a whom. Paul says, I preach to you Christ the Lord. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I greatly labor and this power works in me to accomplish it mightily. Christ Jesus the Lord is the means, motive, and end of our preaching. But that's the apostolic message. Now let's move in to the apostolic method. Preaching and teaching are distinctly different. How many of you kids have seen the movie Shrek? You know that, that green ogre who's really ugly with the big nose? And in that kingdom, there's a bad king named Lord Farquaad. You, and every time Lord Farquaad comes on the scene, somebody walks out with a trumpet and goes, boop, 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 boop. hear ye, hear ye, Lord Farquaad has a message. That is the role of a herald. Now that's funny and that's a cartoon, but a herald is someone who proclaims the proclamation of a king. That is the biblical role and definition of preaching. Someone who declares what the king says. 
Someone who proclaims the king's words. Someone who stands in the authority of the king as an ambassador of the king, declaring the rule and reign of a king. This is the biblical mandate of proclamation. Now, we put a great emphasis in this church upon discipleship, and rightfully so. It's part of the Great Commission. We want to help our friends become devoted followers of Jesus. Discipleship is the heartbeat and backbone of what we do. That's found in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Well, there's also ending in Mark 16, which is equally a part of the Great Commission. I call it the Great Missionary Mandate. Preach the gospel to all creation. We cannot forsake discipleship for proclamation, and we cannot forsake proclamation for discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship are two sides of the same coin. Both are needed. Both are indispensable to the Great Commission. Paul understood this. He says, "Great without, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up in glory. Now, if you continue, you know Paul says in the fourth chapter of the sixth verse of first epistle of Timothy, he tells us, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. I want to be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And if I could tell you one thing this morning, it would be don't let the fire go out. Don't let it go out. I know you've noticed that it's getting dark. It's darker now than any day that I can remember. It's dark, folks. 1,700 children are aborted every day. Why don't we march and rally about that? It's dark. How do you want to be remembered? You know why it's dark? Because the church has been silent. Silent. If the enemy, if the devil can do one thing, he'll silence the church. He doesn't care about our humanitarian organizations. He doesn't care about our feeding the homeless, feeding the needy. He doesn't care about education or Sunday school. He doesn't care about our worship sets and how we bang our drums and our laser beams and our fog machines. He wants one thing. He wants us to be silent. And we are where we are right now as a nation is because of the silence of the church. How do you want to go down? I, my inbox is full. Is this the end? Is this the falling away? Is this the love of many growing cold? I don't know. But I'm not going down silent. We've looked at the apostolic message. Now let us look at the apostolic method. People say, we gotta get back to New Testament Christianity and no one can accuse me of not being thorough because I wrote out 60 verses of what they did in the New Testament. Of course I'm going to read them. Why would you think I wasn't gonna read them? 
I'll go quickly. Because I want you to understand. Because just maybe, if we believe the things they believed and do the things they did, just maybe we'll see the things they see. If we believe the things they believe and do the things that they did, just maybe we might see the things that they saw. Yes, it's dark. But he looks at us and says, you are the light of the world. In Acts chapter 1, it says, and you shall be my witnesses. Acts chapter 2, it says, they raised their voice. In the 40th verse, it says, he testified and exhorted. In the third chapter, he responded to the people. Peter was filled with the Holy Ghost and said, you rulers of Israel, in the fourth chapter. In the 17th verse, he spoke. In the 20th verse, he spoke the things He says, we cannot help but speak the things we've seen and heard. In the 29th verse, it says, oh God, that you would give us boldness to speak your word. In the 33rd verse, it says that they gave witness. It says that they spoke to the people. They taught the people that they were daily in every house and in the temple teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It says that we must dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word. It says, and the word of this God spread and the disciples were multiplied. It says, brethren, fathers, listen, preaching, preaching, preached, 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 bear my name. Immediately he preached. These are the verbs over and over again. You, you want to talk about Acts of the Apostles? You want to talk about an Apostles a series? You cannot study the Acts of the Apostles without understanding that their primary act was preaching, testifying, publicly declaring that Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of mankind and that he was raised that man might be delivered from the power of darkness into the power of God's marvelous light and that if any man would repent and put his absolute trust and reliance in Jesus of Nazareth, he could be saved. Continuing, they preached. Immediately they preached. In the ninth chapter, they declared. They spoke boldly. They testified, preaching, preaching in Caesarea, preaching in Cyprus, preaching in Cyrene. Immediately they preached. Paul says, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Preaching, preaching. They declare glad tidings, speaking boldly in the Lord. I preach to you, preaching to you, preaching the word, preaching the gospel. And he remained in Antioch, both teaching and preaching. And just in case you weren't paying attention, if you remember the last verse in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was daily preaching and teaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and no one forbade him. The world goes to hell because of the silence of the church. In Revelation, there's a list of all the people that are on the outside. It says adulterers and sorcerers and fornicators and all of these horrendous sins are listed. But right in the middle, it says the cowardly. I don't want to be a cowardly Christian. Christian. 
all evangelism flows from a heart of love. We witness and testify of whom we truly love. But I don't want you to be without hope and I don't want you to feel like you're an orphan because you have been given the spirit of God and you have a great apostolic heritage. Most Christians are completely oblivious and ignorant to their Christian heritage. Did you know that you are surrounded by a great testimony and cloud of witnesses. I'm reminded of St. Francis. Now, people say this to me a lot. They'll look, I'll be preaching, and they'll come to me and go, preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. That's so stupid. That's like feed the homeless, and if you have to, use food. And they don't know that St. Francis was one of the greatest apostolic preachers the church ever saw. Without him, we wouldn't even have the church of the Holy Sepulchre where Jesus rose from the dead. Hear me out. Because when Salah Adin sacked Jerusalem, St. Francis made such an impression because of his courageous preaching to the Muslim horde that Salah Adin says, don't, don't destroy the, the tomb because of Francis. I'm reminded of George Fox. You know the guy who looks like he's on Quaker Oats? That's him. He's the Quaker of Quakers. He started the movement. And before you laugh, when he would get going, you would shake. You would quake under the power of God. That's why they called them Quakers. Because he would preach with such fire and anointing, you would shake. That's what the fire looks like. He wore leather clothes because he didn't consider it decent to preach naked because they would strip his clothes from him, the mob would. I'm reminded of John Bunyan. You've read Pilgrim's Progress, that great Christian work. It was written in jail. Why was he in jail? Because he was a preacher. I'm reminded of George Whitfield, that you could hear his voice for five miles on a clear day. And one time he said, that I was honored today to be baptized with a dead cat. Somebody threw a dead cat at it when he was preaching. I'm reminded of St. Patrick in Ireland, on how he would, the first thing he would do to inspire new converts is set them out and declaring who Jesus was. I'm reminded of John Wesley, who on one occasion preached to 1,100 people, and they were lying face down in conviction of sin, and he was standing on his father's tombstone because it was the only place he could legally, legally preach in England. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon, who considered it a mandatory for all ministers of the gospel to be preachers. You know, that used to be the case. You know, the man Luther Foster, whose Bible is in the foundation of our church, he told me one time, he goes, I'm so glad that you're still preaching because 60 years ago, that was common. It's not common now. Thank you for doing that. Don't let the fire go out. I'm grateful for A.W. Tozer, that great Christian mystic who was saved by a street preacher. I'm grateful for William Booth, who was also saved by a street preacher, who raised an army of preachers and proclaimers of the gospel. They went into 100 countries in 10 years with the motto of the blood of Jesus and the fire of God. I'm grateful for his wife. Yes, women can preach. She also preached 
Do you know she publicly debated Karl Marx, the communist, and won? She sent the communists running in her day. Who will do it today? They sure to be marching everywhere in our streets. He who has ears to hear. I'm grateful for F.W. Bourne, that Baptist essayist, who the only reason we know about him is because Spurgeon saw his successful preaching in the public. I'm grateful for Holy Hubert, that revivalist in the 60s who marched against the Vietnam protesters, declaring Jesus is the Son of God, who was hospitalized over 20 times for preaching the gospel. And he didn't put his teeth back in his head at the dentist because he thought it was a waste of God's money. I'm grateful for Billy Graham. Before he ever preached at Madison Square Garden to thousands of people, he was thrown in a ditch outside of a bar. We've looked at the apostolic message, the apostolic method. Now let us consider the cost. There's a cost to being a preacher of the gospel. They're never going to treat you better than the way they treated him. And the moment you become engaged in the divine sacred art of preaching, you will receive the full hostility of hell. Jesus says you'll have enemies in your own household. I've come to set two against three. That he'll be divided. That you'll have enemies even here amongst the brethren. Two against three, three against two, father against mother, son against daughter. But he is worthy to be proclaimed. But there is a great cost. Paul says that we among all these men are the scum of the earth. And I understand it looks foolish. I understand preaching looks foolish, but God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But I understand as Keith did, Keith Green, that great, that great poet said this, I'd rather have people hate me with the knowledge I tried to save them. But they will hate you. And this is why. If people hate the truth, then the truth will sound like hatred. Nowadays, they say, oh, the gospel's hate speech, hate speech. But truth is hatred to those who hate the truth. I love this time of year when I was a kid because I would get a fresh box of crayons. I, by the end of the year, mine were always like little nubs. I love the color. But at the start of the year, you'd get a big fresh box. And I've seen so much criticism regarding evangelism. Well, I don't like the way that this person evangelizes. 
I don't like the way this person preaches. Well, that person preaches hellfire. Well, that guy just does apologetics. Or, or this guy just hands out tracts. Why is this person always sharing their testimony? Constant criticism, all it is is disguised cowardice. Just because you don't like someone's color or someone's shade or hue, the way that they do it, how are you making your mark on the world? What's your color? How are you painting this world to be a better place? How are you proclaiming the gospel? They said to D.L. Moody, this woman says, I don't like the way that you preach. And he very wisely said, okay, well, how do you preach? And she goes, well, I don't preach. And he said, well, I like the way that I preach more than the way that you don't preach. But you can measure divine activity by hostility. You can measure divine activity by hostility. And as Billy Sunday, that great preacher says, if you're not meeting the devil head on in your ministry, you're going in the same direction. If you're not receiving the hatred of the world over your ministry and over your evangelism, it might just be possible that you're silent. Because if he wants one thing, folks, he wants a silent church. But you have to ask yourselves, if this is the end, how do you want to go down? What do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? I want to be surrounded by my enemies, loving them to the end. Offering them the forgiveness that comes through the blood of the Son of God. How do you want to be remembered? Held up in your home, silent and afraid? Or publicly declaring that Jesus is the risen Son of the living God? And that if any man repent and believe, he may have life in his name. I'm reminded of the great... Christian missionary, Amy Carmichael, who was a minister and gospel preacher in India. Most people know her as missionary. Very few know that she was often in public evangelism in the marketplaces. As a woman, single and often afflicted physically, she would preach to angry Hindu mobs. And I want to quote from her about the cost of apostolic preaching. She says in a poem, have you no wound or no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Could you have traveled far with no wound or no scar. There is a cost to following Jesus into public proclamation. But I believe Jesus of Nazareth is calling many right now. I know I can't be the only one. I know that I'm not. But you must be obedient to the call. 
What does the call look like? It might look like you have seen yourself in a vision or a dream speaking to multitudes about who Jesus is, whether even in our country or in a foreign country. This is awesome, also the first start of what a call looks like. But you must be obedient to the call. You must be like the Apostle Paul who says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. 